having so much fun here with equipment. <laughs> Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, those producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, composers, you name it, we talk with them. And we're going to be doing some talking today on the show. Joining us at the midpoint of the show is going to be Mike Taylor, writer, director, and editor. His feature directorial debut. He is an accomplished uh, director of TV commercials. He's done many over the years for Army and Air National Guard, uh, the Veterans Administration, and things for uh, State of Virginia Tourism. And he's done some shorts. But now he's got his feature film debut, There Is a Monster. And it's a really interesting film, and I can't wait to talk to Mike about it. Before that, shortly, momentarily here, you're going to hear my exclusive interview with Roxine Helberg about her feature directorial debut with Cold Copy, a thriller, to be sure. It is a story of two driven women in television. One is a student who wants an internship, wants a job on the show with Diane Hager, who is played by Tracy Ellis Ross. Uh, Our very eager student, Mia Scott, is brilliantly played by Belle Powley. And it's a really great examination of journalistic integrity for the sake of advancing your career, delivering something compelling, salacious, uh, and for the most part, untrue. And, you know, the lengths that you will go to. How cutthroat are you? What is your moral compass? Do you have one? And the pawn in this is a young man named Igor Nowak whose mother committed suicide some months earlier. And he's just, he and his father have just shut themselves off. However, Mia runs into Igor and thinks that she has a way to find an interesting story that will impress Diane Hager. And it's really interesting to watch these character studies unfold. Um, This whole aspect of media manipulation or manipulation in general. Because as you will see, all three of these main characters are trying to manipulate the other. And it's fascinating it, Roxine has she worked with Matteo Coco as a cinematographer. The cinematography is absolutely delicious. It is intimate. It is pretty much in Mia's headspace. Uh, shot as if through a single-minded lens. Color is very important with very distinct colors for each of our three principles. Editing is by Arndt Wolf. P. Moeller, the pacing is rapier. There's a wonderful visual language as Arndt cuts back and forth between engaging situations with Diane and with Mia and with Igor. There are some beautiful montages in here that really help establish the mindset and specific moments of what's happening in this dynamic. Um, It is well worth seeing. It is out now. It just released on Friday. And I had the chance to speak with Roxine uh, the other day on Wednesday. 
to talk about the film. It is well worth a watch. And it's a kind of thriller we don't see that often. So, as I try and regain my voice, as you can tell, the past few weeks, I've been battling bronchitis and a bronchial cough and laryngitis. So, my voice goes in and out. But uh, without any further ado, so I can save my voice for when Mike calls in at the half hour mark, take a listen to my exclusive interview with writer-director Roxine Helberg talking about cold copy. Hi, Debbie. It's nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. What an auspicious first feature directorial debut you've got here. (laughs) Wow. You just, you, this is no holds barred. You just dive right in here. I love your approach. I love the analysis and the way you break down truth versus narrative, truth within ourselves, a.k.a. our moral compasses, how we manipulate the truth and people and the narrative, and the lengths that an individual will go to in order to convey or create their own truth. And we see this play out in Diane, in Mia, and in Igor. And it's fascinating to watch these characters and the interaction with Mia being the connective tissue with to Hager and also to Igor. Fascinating. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. I mean... Um, you know, I think <clears throat> I, I wanted to explore our relationship with truth and a very sort of particular form of attention economy um, that we're in. Uh, and I wanted to do it in a certain uh, heightened way to examine its dark side. And I think to me it was about, you know, examining our system and how a broader cultural attitude can breed particular types of people and reward that behavior. And, um, you know, I think it was, writing it was really liberating because I think that sort of pressure to conform to a specific set of traits, you know, what we think we need to be like in order to be successful is one that's particularly felt by women. And in this story, I was getting to play out the sort of worst case scenario of that pressure. So it was almost like this cautionary tale to myself. Um, so, and, and I love writing transgressive, flawed women. Um, and so that was the angle I decided to take with this. Flawed is always so much more fun. Because it's more human. That's right. I mean, everybody has is flawed in some manner. What I really like is we see warts and all on these characters here. And... You really, you mentioned a cautionary tale, and it truly is, and it everybody talks about clickbait. This really takes clickbait to a whole other level, and to see it play out. And I've got to say, it's really hard, difficult for the bulk of this film. You don't like, really like either of these women. You understand them but you don't necessarily like them, yet watching their collision course and what's happening, it's kind of like driving by a train, uh, you know, a wreck on the freeway and you've got to stop and look and you can't look away because you really want to see, do we have redemption anywhere? Does anybody have a conscience? And luckily you address that. Yeah, you know, my, my, my approach to writing um, Mia and Diane, these two women, was, came down to realizing the fact that these are two women with, at the very core, the same drive, and that success is a door to validation. And they seek that success because they feel deprived of connection. In Mia's case, because she lost her mother and as an adult struggles with social connection. And in Diane's, because she wanted to break away from what she saw as a dead end 
lonely childhood right from the start. And the dance they then get to do throughout the film is rooted in that. The fact that they're superficially so different, but centrally so similar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's these two characters circling one another, gradually realizing they share something fundamental, only for that similarity to destroy their relationship as one betrayal follows the other. It's fascinating to watch that play out. But as I said, it's like you take us back to the moral compass. And I love, love seeing that within this third act structure. But what's also interesting, and I hope people don't overlook it, is Jacob Tremblay as Igor. Because Igor is such an interesting character. And he also, he's got a facade, he's got to present. He's alone. He's essentially both of them rolled... Hager and Mia rolled into one. He is them. Yeah, so like you said, he is essentially uh, uh, Mia and uh, uh, he's very similar to Mia. I mean, there's a a sort of mirror there. Um, You know, he's charming, genuine, and unpretentious, but he's at ease with himself, which contrasts with Mia. You know, in a way, he's the heart of the story. Yes. It's a story that is about the cost of abandoning truth, and he's the cost of that. And Mia has made him into the exact thing he doesn't want to be. He's someone who's trying to escape a story and the shadow of his mom's success in order to connect with others as a person, while Mia is trying to find the story, the success, at the cost of connection. So that's where the, 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 the mirror is. And with Igor, what was so important was that he represents the opposite, someone who also has a similar hardship in life, but who hasn't turned that struggle into fuel um, for something dark. Right. Um, so, um, you yeah. know, uh, he, he, his defining characteristic, I would say, is his sort of self-possessedness. Um, so... Um, he, uh, he's just, he's a kid who's been through the tragedy of losing his mom, um, uh, but he just decides to reject uh, um, that framing. Um, and I think that that's what's so charming about him, what makes him a fun counterpoint to Mia, and it's what makes the story tragic. And as you watch what happens with him and his dynamic with her, it's, he's almost so desperate for a friend. Yeah. And she feeds on that. And yeah. it's really interesting to watch that dynamic and that structure. And what makes it even more precious is to see Jacob's performance as Igor. We haven't seen anything from Jacob like this before. Yeah. He is amazing. And put him opposite Belle, who can tackle the toughest darkest elements of a character. It's fantastic watching them. Yeah, I I, uh, I totally agree with you. You know, <clears throat> I mean, the thing is, I, I knew that the story really rested um, on the duality between the characters of Mia and Diane, mm-hmm. and that's a gap between their outward presentation and their truer selves. And, you know, to your point, Belle has this incredible ability to ride the line between being wide-eyed and naive on the one hand, but really sharp and considered and almost intimidating on the other. Mm-hmm. And we needed the audience to believe that Mia could go either way, either fall into Diane's hole or loosen up via Igor and realize she was on the wrong path. And I knew Belle could pull that off like no one else. Oh, my God. All you have to do is, for anybody that hasn't seen it, or if they have, Diary of a Teenage Girl. That is just... That set the stage for all of us as to what Belle can bring to a role. Just amazing. But now, how did you go about approaching this it's one thing on the page. It's another to bring it li- to life on screen. Because I have to say, 
I love your visual grammar. I love what you and your DP, Mateo, have put together from a visual standpoint to create a visual tonal bandwidth. So I'm curious, what were you looking for? Because there's a great intimacy. You use color, very defining as to character. So uh, how did the two of you approach the visual grammar? You know, um, I think I wanted the film to feel kinetic and propulsive with energy and movement to sort of <clears throat> represent her drive and urgency. And I wanted it to feel alive. Um, and the visual style is anchored in realism, but with a twist because it felt like the perfect way to explore this idea of manipulation of truth. And we played a lot with the idea of contrast without drawing attention to itself, but combining opposing elements, um, such, as, such as like realistic lighting with camera designs um, to sort of enhance the meaning and impact of the film and uh, hopefully sort of sweep the viewer into the psyche of Mia. Um, you know, the film in a way is an American story and production, but I think it has a European sensibility. Um, Matteo Coco, the cinematographer, is Italian. And I wanted to keep this about the intimate personal impact of truth manipulation. And that's how I approached it in directing, making sure that every decision was about echoing Mia's downward journey on that intimate level, rather than trying to make any sweeping statements about the state of truth. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that, or I hope that what that did is help the film explore the fact that truth isn't an isolated thing. We can just observe dispassionately. It's always going to be filtered through the sort of complex mesh of our perceptions and personalities and circumstances. Yeah. And I love the idea of the color because we continually see Tracy's character, Diane Hager, black and red and the whole set of her show red it's almost a metaphor for hell that you know mia is being drawn lured by the devil into hell and will she fall for it while you keep mia and everything surrounding her in blues these beautiful cooler blues and then igor he's in grays he just kind of falls into the background at times. So I love your color palette and the metaphor beneath color. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted it, um, you know, on one hand, there was part of that decision was a practical one. We only have 20 days to shoot <laughs> and we didn't want, we had to figure out how to move fast. I also didn't want it to be like a fashion show where in every scene it was a new outfit and i liked you know it's kind of like in comic books where the characters are always wearing the same outfit mm -hmm. you sort of um forget about it and i and i and i liked um and i liked that idea and i liked the idea of you know uh playing with colors where you didn't know whether mia would be pulled into the red or into you know, Igor's colors, uh, colors. Um, so that was just uh, uh, a fun uh, tool to play with. And if I'm not mistaken, the final shot in the film that has Mia in it, she's wearing gray pants that brings in Igor and blues. So I like that meld. I like that yeah. meld. So it really, it speaks volumes. When you watch the whole film, people will understand and get that. Now, you've got to keep people interested in this. Got to keep us on the edge of our seat. You do that very well. Talk to me about the challenges of editing this film. Finding the pacing. Especially finding that visual back and forth as we go from... Diane to Mia to Igor, and then tossing in some really powerful montages. Um, you know, I watched a lot of interviews 
um, when I was uh, um, um, writing this, um, and you know, I watched a lot of these sort of um, star-driven news shows where the news itself is sort of filtered through the perspective or charisma of these presenters and I think because I think there's something really unnerving about giving the news such a sort of transformative face and mouth in that way and I wanted and I and and when we were editing I wanted to sort of explore that unnerving angle in Diane and what she does and you know what's so fascinating to me about these sort of one-on-one interviews is that you know these interviewers can simultaneously put a subject at ease and wrong foot them and get them to open up while challenging them it's almost like watching a sparring match mm-hmm. um and and i i look at them and i and and so that was sort of the approach when we were editing it was like we were thinking about it as a sparring match and you know um you know, when I look at these sort of interviews and I see everything, or interviewers such as like Amanpour, Falachi, and, and, and I see everything that journalism can and should embody, and it's this incredible ability to squeeze truth out of a, out of a stone and to be conscientious with what they find. And what's so dark and tragic about Diane is that she has some of that same power but misuses it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I had worked with Arndt uh, P. Muller, the, the editor, um, and I knew what a talented storyteller he was from character to structure to pace. And so, um, and we also have very similar sensibilities and I trust his taste. So, you know, of course, having a similar background, like that was so helpful to the collaborative process because we were operating from the same sort of frame of reference. You know, we had this, pre-existing shorthand um, that just made everything a little bit smoother. Was it difficult to find the pacing for this film? Because you have a really good pace where you're building us up incrementally. Tension is building. Is Mia going to explode? Is Diane going to explode? Are we going to have a confrontation? You build, really build to that third act. That could not have been easy to find that pace. No, it, it wasn't easy, but we really, we didn't have a lot of time to edit. Um, I think, you know, because there's like, I think we focused it really on always going back to this idea that this story was about the manipulation of truth. And, and it's focused on manipulation in the sort of Mia-Diane-Igor relationship um, and the sort of dark manipulation game between the two leads and the suspense surrounding how far Diane and Mia will take things to get their story and the big betrayals both characters commit in the course of that game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that sort of drove um drove uh, um the the pace of the whole film mm-hmm. now question for you because you wrote and directed this so did you encounter any challenges of having to kill your darlings on screen you've got one thing on the page you've got another that you're shooting did you have to kill your darlings at some point and sacrifice the words on the page? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I really, film is an ensemble, assemble, and I think a big part of a director's job is having the ability to pick the right collaborators. Um, and, you know, I got to work with so many talented people, but who are also really interesting. Um, you know, Tracy isn't just talented. She's an interesting person mm-hmm. in the way she thinks about life. And the same can be said about uh, uh, my composer, Toti Gunasam. And so work is, co- and, and by the way, of course, so many of the other people who worked on the film. And so work is coming out of all these people that you inspire, but that inspire you. And as the film progresses, you're sort of 
you're working with all these people and it's as if the movie starts to make itself and it starts telling you what it should be and you hold the reins just enough to get it there. And so you learn not to be too precious about what's on the page and in your head because ultimately it'll never be as raw and invigorating as what happens naturally on the day. So in a way it's really um, an exercise in being as present as possible. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned another key element of the film. You mentioned your composer, Toti. What were you looking for musically? I like the scoring here. It's never overpowering. It's subdued. And it lets the performances and the dynamic between Diane and Mia really be in the forefront. So what were you looking for musically from Toti? Yeah. I mean, really, I wanted the music to add a dimension to the story and the characters. Um, I wanted it to be melodious, and I wanted it to have a duality, um, um, to be sort of vibrant and deep in its impact. And I wanted, and and I wanted to mix an electronic layer with classical instruments to create something um, singular and fresh. And I have to to say he. He wrote the score in, I think, like, no more than a month, three weeks to a month. Um, wow. So he did really, I, I, I hope to work with him uh, again in the future. One last question for you, Roxy. Now that you have your first feature directorial under your belt, as you look back on it, what did you learn about yourself as a storyteller and filmmaker? making this film that you can now take forward into your future projects? So many, a lot. Um, I think, um, you know, I think that filmmaking is really about having ideas and committing to them and being courageous about your vision while also being practical. And I think that the real key is specificity. Um, to me, the narratives and stories that really resonate with people tend to be those that are really specific. Um, and um, I, uh, I hope to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, apply these uh, uh, lessons in, um, in everything I do in the future. This was an amazing feature debut. I can't wait to see what you bring us next. Oh, thank you so much and thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Roxine. And you have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Roxine Helberg talking about Cold Copy. Really, it is an excellent film. It's a fascinating character study and situational study. Uh, and especially given an election year for us right now, I think that many of you will find it even more interesting as to the media and manipulation and truth versus narrative. Um, so check it out. Uh, but right now, as I'm losing things here, Let's shuffle things. Because right now we're going to switch gears. And a big hello to Mike Taylor. Hi, Mike. Hello. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. The sun's shining. The sky's blue. It's a little chilly, but it's okay. <laughs> and you've got your first feature directorial film releasing tomorrow. Yes, yes I do. Yes. How excited are you for There Is a I'm Monster? Excited. You are? It's been a, it's been a long road. I, I, I'm wondering how I'm going to feel tomorrow. I don't really know at the moment. You know what I mean? I've been doing this, working on this for so long, and to finally have it coming out, it's, I'm hoping it's a huge relief and, and happiness. Well, you're releasing on, what, 20-some platforms digitally tomorrow? Yes. Yeah, 20. Yeah. And that's a uh, good number of platforms. and Oh, yeah, I'm, ex I'm excited about that. I'll shut up. Go ahead. No. And, but this is also a film that 
we don't often see something of this ilk. Um, mm. There is a monster. And if anybody looks at the poster, it looks like a horror film. If right. you start watching the film, you realize this is a horror film, but not the horror that you might have thought it was going to be. And right. you develop this story and you walk that line so beautifully, Mike. Um, Thank you. I figured pretty early on where you were going with this and what the mm -hmm. reveal was going to be. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not going to tell people what that reveal is, are we? No, please. No, no. we're not. No. 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 What I will say, though, is that fans of General Hospital who watch General Hospital, if you have been paying attention for the past six months to a particular storyline, that is your clue to an element of the storyline, and there is a monster. Okay, well, I don't watch General Hospital. Oh, see? You've just given away. <laughs> Not much, because there are so many storylines happening. Um, but this is so incredible to watch, Mike. And I got to say, your lead, Joey Collins, as Jack, is amazing. What he brings to the character and yes. the arc of the character and the story is amazing we meet him and he's relatively happy his wife is mad at him yes. he, he had an indiscretion he is only one only one but still <laughs> that's enough yeah, of a, enough of a reason for her to uh it, you know not be cooking for him not be talking right. to him he's living on tv dinners um, but he's a, he's a photographer. He's for 20 years, he's been doing portraits, a lot of corporate portraits, which can be, you know, a semi lucrative business. Oh, it can definitely can be. Yes. But now he's suddenly getting calls. He gets a job for a fashion shoot. Well, that's big news. That's mm -hmm. huge for a photographer. And his wife is suddenly talking to him. Kind of, sort of. Kind of, sort of. Kind of, sort of. And encouraging him. It's like, hey, that's great. You know, obviously, is part of her disdain. He's just a portrait photographer. Um, now, being a fashion photographer, will he be more highbrow? Those things run through your mind as to what mm -hmm. a wife might be thinking. But... As his business picks up and increases, word of mouth, in addition to the corporate pictures he does, more fashion shoots, more work is coming. Something's happening to him. Yeah. And he doesn't understand it. He just knows something is really wrong. Is his mind playing tricks on him? Right. Um. We see what he sees. Yeah. But no one else does. No one else does. So then you have this poor man who a psychiatrist sits there stone-faced and with no emotion reflected on his face at all. And we have poor Jack. It's like he just thinks I'm crazy. He's not listening to what I'm saying. Right. And you feel so badly for him. Because clearly, we see what he sees. And it's, mm -hmm. well, why does nobody else see this? Or is something so wrong with him that he's manifesting these visions? Right. And it's a, the subtext that you have created, Mike, with all of the possibilities... And subtextual commentary on, you know, the medical and, you know, health care, uh, the, mm -hmm. the medical profession, you know, 
are, there's a lot of talk about mental illness. And yet here's this poor man who may be suffering from a mental illness, but he's being, you know, shuffed under the, you know, sloughed under the rug. So it's so fascinating to watch this and to see more and more how his problems are manifesting and how this looming specter is getting, as everyone can see in the poster, is getting larger and larger. Yeah. And your heart breaks because we realize, we know something is wrong with him. Why? And his wife finally does say, okay, I know something's wrong. But, you know, nobody knows what. But to finally have somebody believe him that something is wrong is a huge step for him. Mm -hmm. And as people watch this film, I think it's something that almost everybody is going to be able to relate to on one level or another. Right. Just so beautifully written, Mike. So beautifully written. You know, what was the genesis for this story? Um, Okay. The genesis uh, was my sister um, became, she went through a horrible sort of disease. And I thought, um, I need to write something. You know, and I tried to write, I started out with a pure horror sort of intent. Um, and it does fall under the banner of horror, the mm-hmm. umbrella of horror, I believe. Um, but she was sick. She was attacked by this thing. And I thought, what if I turned this, the, the disease that attacked her into a monster and then use that as a sort of a springboard into the, the horror genre? So that's, that's what I did. Well, um, uh, it works beautifully. Well, thank you. Um, and Joey, Joey Collins, he really does carry the load. Uh. Uh, I, I, I found him. He was uh, he'd been on stage in New York, and had just moved down to the D.C. area recently. And that's how I found him. Um, I'm in Virginia, by the way. I'm on the East Coast, um, and uh, I think all my actors did a pretty solid job. I, I did hire. I did have work under a SAG contract. So, um, but the story, you know, back to the story, the question that really came from what, what, what my sister went through. And, and I think you see that a bit in Jack as it moves along because it starts out innocently enough, but then it gets worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, how did you, once you have this on paper, because obviously mm-hmm. this is what I love to call the low budget, no budget, micro budget film. Um, right. So, how did you go about translating it from paper to the screen? I love your visual grammar. I like how this is very contained um, mm-hmm. with the photography studio, with Jack's house, and really only two rooms in the house, and right. a doctor's office. And a corner table at the local bar. Right. Uh, So you keep it very small footprint, but it creates... That was intentional. Um, You know, I kept it, I kept my location as minimal because, um, because of budget and time, you know, because time is money, as they say. And I knew if I could not have to do too many company moves, um, I could get a lot done in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. But it also creates this great intimacy, which makes this a very personal story. If this yeah. was if this was Jack's story, and we were looking at wide screens, panoramic vistas, it, it would fall flat. It would not have right. you, 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 that emotional gravitas. I think you lose track of him. I did that. Mm-hmm. But this way... Yeah, this keeps very, very, very contained and close on Jack, I think, for the most part. Yeah. It does. And you actually give him a really great little support system. 
there is his wife, Carol, once she starts mm-hmm. talking to him. Um, right, right. A great supporting character that you have is Jack's assistant, Billy, that Jesse Milner yeah. plays. He is, he's wonderful. He is this upbeat, positive guy and maintains this positivity throughout the film. And he really buoys, I think his upbeat nature buoys Jack when Jack is starting to get somewhat depressed over this this situation uh, of not knowing what, what's going on um also a best friend marcella shepherd as david yeah um and of course very smartly you throw in the makeup girl Susie, played by mary rose howley um Mm -hmm. you set the stage really well with Susie and jack early on and until we get more details you wonder, oh, what is he doing? Right. So you create this little world around him that is so well constructed. Um, we see the core of his existence. Mm-hmm. And if Jack can't make these people believe something's wrong, nobody's going to believe it. Right. How difficult right. was it casting these roles? It was. It's, it's interesting in that Jack, the character of Jack, was the hardest one to cast. Um, I, if I can get into the nuts and bolts, is yes. that okay? Yes. A little bit. Okay. So I did a lot of my casting. I used and this is not a plug, but I used Backstage.com for a lot of my casting, um, and I think probably. Most of my cast came from that, but Jack wasn't on there. I mean, I mean, Joey wasn't on there, and um, I just had this. I'd seen one little clip of him and saw his resume. Getting in touch with him was just, you know, I, it took a while. And I think I cast him two weeks before we started shooting. Oh my god! Um, yeah, that's um, cutting it a bit close. Cutting it a little bit close. Well, my my location was even closer. Um, I had looked at two houses. One, the realtor said no. The other, the guy said yes, but he used it for an Airbnb, and I was getting ready to sign the contract, and it had rented. Oh, God. He forgot to take it off of Airbnb, so the house had rented. So I was sitting there like four days before the shoot, five days before the shoot, without a a house. Um, And uh, a buddy of mine who's a realtor found this wonderful gentleman, Tom Jacoby, had this huge house. But from street level, it doesn't. It looks like a nice house, but not a huge house. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it worked out. That worked out great for us. Um, but the casting was through Backstage.com, and everyone does self tapes these days. And and also finding David took a long time. I found Marcellus about the same time I found Joey, um, and uh, and Marcellus was great. Uh, just a great guy. I came through, and Jesse had. They had both worked on um, on We Own This City, which was on HBO. Jesse and Marcellus were both in that, it turns out. Um, so um, I got very fortunate with my cast. And it's one thing, you know, you talked earlier about, you know, you write the words, you write the screen, and I wrote the screenplay and everything, and I'm giving it to you, then you sort of give it to the actors. Now, I'd given each actor sort of a backstory. Mm-hmm. I wrote about a half a page, just let them know about the characters, their history, what they're like, that kind of thing. And then, of course, then the character becomes theirs. And so I started out trying to be harder towards horror, honestly. But as I got the performances that I was getting from from Joey, from Ina, from, you know, Jesse, uh, everyone, I realized it had a much deeper, more serious uh, tone and feel to it. Mm-hmm. So I wrote that. I went with that. Yeah, there's a very thoughtful tone that mm-hmm. underscores everything with There is a Monster. It's a very thoughtful Thanks. tone, um, especially when you see the film and you get to the end of it. And there's a poignancy there, but 
you do it does still fall into a horror the horror genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It most definitely does. It's you know, an offshoot within because as we all know, the horror genre is very broad. Uh, right. With lots of little pockets inside of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, this really falls into one of those very special pockets. Now, you were Can also... You talk about... Go ahead. Uh, oh, I was going to say, you're also editing this. Well, I credited my late mother, but um, I did edit it. Um, so I, I wrote it. I produced it, obviously, and I wrote it and directed it. Um, and I, I was looking for an editor after we... Sh- I'd been looking for an editor for months and months, and I was hoping to find you know a young editor who was trying to wanted something like this and I just couldn't find anyone. And I finally just decided, decided to start, you know, start assembling it myself and I just ended up editing myself. So, yeah. And that's interesting because of the fact that when you shot it, you had no designs on editing. So it isn't, it isn't like you could second get your second guess yourself while you're shooting and go up. Don't need that coverage shot. I know how I'm going to take care of this in, in editing. Um, Or, oh, if I get rid of this, I'm not going to have to edit. That's good. So that's interesting. So when, so when you go, went and actually started assembling it and cutting it, did you have any revelatory moments of looking at the footage where you saw where you could create something that you hadn't thought of while you were shooting or writing? That's a good question. Um... I'm trying to think if I, I had a couple moments. I don't know if I did or not, because here's the thing. I come from the commercial world. Mm-hmm. So, and I've been an agency and broadcast producer on one side, but also I directed commercials for years. And so I'm very familiar with post-production, that whole process. And so when I'm shooting them, I am thinking how it's all going to fit together in the end. Um, that is on my mind when I'm doing it. Um, I'm trying to think of, of I, I, I've, just give me a second here. I know that, for example, the dream sequence, little night, nightmare sequence mm-hmm. you go through, is something that I, I really played with. I shot it one way, but I cut it a completely different way. You know what I mean? Ooh. And I cut it in a more of a herky-jerky kind of a way, which I think had more 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 punch to gave it more punch. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I was going to say earlier is, you know, writing the screenplay, I had the ending from the... That was the first thought. My... The ending was the first thing I had, and and I built the whole screenplay backwards, kind of from you know getting to the ending, because that was the first clear thing I had in my head. I knew I wanted that shot um, to end the movie. Mm-hmm. How long was the um, writing process? Um, I started in June of 2021, and I I sort of finished by September, August, September of 2021. But I was rewriting. We shot in December of 2021, um, and then February of 2022. Um, and then you, you probably ask, why did it take so long to get the screen? Well, the the I do have visual effects in the film, and some of those I had to. It's a long story, but I had to wait months and months and months to get those. So that's what happened there. Um, but I wrote it. It took like June, yeah, June, July, August into September of 2021. Is I was sort of done with the screenplay. Actually, I, I even take that back because I was into October, maybe even November. I was still working on it. You know, you you work on it until you can't work on it anymore. Anymore. Mm-hmm. And I was um, so that's sort of the time frame, I guess. So after working on this, and you start shooting, and you realize the gold that you're getting from your actors. How closely did you stick with the script, with the dialogue? Uh, and how much ad-libbing uh, did they get to do? Oh, there was hardly any ad-libbing at all. Um, there, were, there were times where, like, a paragraph didn't really feel come out of the mouth right of the actor. Mm-hmm. And so we would work to sort of rewrite it. But I would say we were probably 99% script. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's almost unheard of. Well, I wasn't dry, I wasn't cracking the whip and saying you have to do that, but it's just the words seemed to come out and, and it seemed to work for everybody. So we there wasn't a real need to I, I, 
it wasn't an easy change. Well, and also with this particular story and the dialogue you have, you really need that dialogue for what we're seeing for what's happening. Yeah, uh, it yeah. doesn't give you room to go off on a tangent or into some no, monologue but, or changing something um, drastically. Right. There were things I cut. Okay, as I'm shooting and we're running out of time, there was one scene I cut, probably one or two scenes that were cut completely. Um, the psychiatrist scene was one of the things that I just didn't have time to do, so I cut it, and then we came back in February and I shot that. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad I did because I think it helps a lot. So, Oh, it, def- it really helps a lot because we really need to see that stone wall on this psychiatrist's face. Mm-hmm. Um, that nothing that Jack is saying is connecting. He really right. is, he's either tuned out, oblivious, or he doesn't believe him. And he's just sitting there or to what get Jack his... Is saying doesn't, I was going to say, well, also what, Jack is, what Jack is saying doesn't fit any paradigm that the psychiatrist has in his Right. Head. You know what I mean? So, you know. So I think that's, I'm very glad you went back and shot that because that is a very informative scene it's not long but it's very informative right and it really helps with jack's character and with the monster um Mm -hmm. that is getting ever increasingly large and i have to tell you i love that for the bulk of this film the monster is you shot it practically in camera Mm -hmm. But then, it may have taken a while to get your special effects, but those <laughs> special effects look really cool. Great. Thank you. Glad someone likes it. That's good. <laughs> we see them in the hallway. We see them in, in the nightmare sequence. I, li- I really think they look good. They're not over the top. They're subtle. But they're... Mm-hmm. And of course... At the door, at the sliding door. Um, right. And that's enough to freak anybody out. <laughs> that would, if I was walking around in my house and I have a sliding door, and if I saw right. that in my sliding door, I'd be shrieking. I'm in yeah. LA. You'd be hearing me in Virginia. <laughs> You know, very effective. Very effective, Mike. Good. You know, you also, you give us score here. You don't overdo mm-hmm. it. It's very subtle. J.P. Wogeman. Yeah, J.P. wrote it, all the music. Yep. What were you looking for musically? Music's a hard thing for me to talk about, but I was looking for, just to set a tone. I, and I think he really, the opening credits music really kind of sets the tone, I think. Um, and I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to overdo it, but I wanted to just hit in certain places. You know what I mean? I just, mm-hmm. it was, it's fairly sparse, the music. Yeah. But I think where, where it's applied, um, it works. I think when, you know, when he's talking to her at dinner, there's a nice sort of thing there, but also when they're, Chasing down the stairs to go outside. There's a frenetic pace to that, and and um, and JP did a really good job. He's a talented young man. So, yeah, you know, music. It's always tough because sometimes uh, filmmakers will go into overkill, where the music is, right. is leading and telling the audience what's coming, um, right. or what we're supposed to feel. You don't do that here with this, and it's because of the sparsity and the subtlety. Right. I didn't want to, I didn't want to overbear, be overbearing with music on this. No, because you really want the focus to be on Jack and the monster. Mm-hmm. And anything else would just detract from that. That's why this very small ensemble works so well. That's why mm-hmm. your the, the small footprint within... Each scene, each location works so well. It really lets us hone in on Jack and the monster. 
and shut all the unnecessary noise of the world out. And I don't see that too often. And I really appreciate seeing that with this story uh, because it is, it's perfect for it. Now, well, I, I, yes, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I just, I appreciate the kind words is all I was going to say, because you, you don't know. I've been in a little, you know, I've been in this sort of soundproof booth for the past year, wondering how it's going, how people are going to react to the film. And it's nice to hear kind words. Well, let me ask you, first feature directorial, mm-hmm. what was the learning curve like? You've got, you know, plenty of years and experience under your belt with the commercials. Yeah. You did a short. Um, you have all the commercial work that you've done. Um, what was the learning curve like as a director of a feature film? It's it's interesting you say it's it's um, a lot more, okay, um, and because it's you know commercial. I'm working for an agency and a client, and so in a way the load is sort of spread out. And I've got a much bigger I've got a much bigger budget typically and a much bigger crew. You know, for this we have small crew, and there's there's compromise there. Um, also, it's all on me. You know what I mean? So there's that responsibility. Um, and it also takes longer than you think. <laughs> it always takes longer. Than, it's a lot slower than commercials. In commercials, I can work a little bit faster. And this, you know, you have to, when you're shooting, even the shoot days, you've got to pace. And we shot quickly. Um, but I never exceeded 10 hours each day, so I'm very proud of that. So That's almost um, miraculous. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, you know, if I had more time, I might have gotten fancier with my camera moves or things like that or gotten close-ups or things, some more close-ups or things like that. But my main goal in, 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 in making this, besides trying to make a good film that people want to watch, an entertaining film, is, is to be just make sure that I tell the story. You know, and I, and I think I was able to do that. Well, I think you definitely did, Mike. Um, it's clean. It's concise. It follows through. The arc is there with story and with character. And here again, so much of this goes back to Joey's performance as Jack. Yeah. If we don't believe him, we're not going to believe the story. And he is so believable. His physicality, his expressiveness, his emotionality. You cannot help but invest in the character of Jack because of Joey's performance. Right. Just so well done. So well done, Mike. So I now, wish I could get him qualified for an award, but we don't, we can't, we can't do it. So, um, but no, hey, I, thought, I think Joey did an excellent job on this movie. Look, I'm just thrilled. You got, you got distribution. Me too. You know, I mean, films, low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget films, it is so difficult to get distribution. Now, you were on the festival circuit with this, were you not? No, no. I I entered one festival. We didn't get in. They said nice things, but they didn't take us. Okay. But I just entered really just one one festival. Okay. Um, I did have, it turns out I had eight offers for the film. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that's nice. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Without even, without being on the fest circuit and you got eight offers. That's pretty damn good, Mike. Thank you. That's, (laughs) I was pretty happy about that. So, as well you should be. So now that there is a monster is going out into the world tomorrow for everyone to be able to see it. On all the usual suspects of digital platforming, all yes. 20 of them, what is next for you? Do you have an, will you do another feature? Will you yes. go, oh, do you have anything you're working on now? Yes. I, well, I have a screenplay that I wrote about six years ago um, that I am, now laugh all you want, but just the world changes in six yes. years, as you know. And when I wrote the film, it was for a 42-year-old white male 
Um, and I'm rewriting it for a 28 year old female. So, um, my plan is on Wednesday, which is the day after the, there's a monster is finally let free into the world. I get back to rewriting that screenplay, um, to hope to have that. I've already started on it. I hope to have it done by the end of February, early March. And then my plan is this summer to go shoot that film. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. With a little bit bigger budget, uh, with some actors that you've heard of. So, um, just because, you know, the business loves name talent. Well, you have piqued my curiosity already now. Okay. I, I cannot wait for that film. Mike, this has been so wonderful getting to chat with you about There Is a Monster. And I hope we get to do this again in the future. I hope so, Debbie. This has been great. Thank you very much. And I really do appreciate the kind words. Thank you very much for those. Well, and you're, and Karen will tell you, if I thought the film sucked, I'd tell you. Okay, that's good. That's good to know because you're in L.A., not that I don't trust you or anything, but no. that's great. Karen will uh, tell you. Um, okay. I, I, would, I would pick it apart and point out all where you could have done this or where you might have done that. But no, I, mm-hmm. I am brutally honest at times, much to the chagrin of many. But uh, there is nothing to be brutal about here with There is a Monster. Great. Oh, great. Mike, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And you have a great rest of your afternoon and evening. I will. You too, Debbie. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Mike Taylor, writer, director, and editor of There Is a Monster. Thoughtful, poignant. Yes, it's in the horror genre, but you will be surprised at the pocket in which it falls. Out tomorrow on digital platforms. See it, see it, see it. And cold copy. Out in theaters now. Incredible performances from Bell Powley, Tracy Ellis Ross, and Jacob Tremblay. And speaking of Jacob, this Friday on Netflix, an absolutely enchanting animated film, Orion and the Dark. Jacob is the voice of our main talent, a young boy named Orion who is afraid of everything, but most particularly afraid of the dark. And I am in love with this film. Um, With Cold Copy, as you heard in my interview uh, with Roxine, that is a performance we haven't seen from Jacob. This also is in his voice work as Orion in Orion in the Dark is enchanting. I interviewed the director and the producer. You're not going to hear that today. Maybe next week. Uh, and it'll be up on, <coughs> sorry about that, lovely cough, uh, up on BehindTheLensOnline.net this week. But see the book, uh, see the movie on Netflix this Friday, in addition to Jacob. Paul Walter Hauser, he voices Dark. And then Dark, there are lots of things that happen in the Dark, people. If you haven't read the incredible book, Emma Yarlett's book. It came out uh, about 10 years ago. And it's wonderful. If you can pick up a copy of it, if you can get an early copy of it, a hardback edition where they did die-cut pages, it's wonderful. Your kids will love it. You'll love it. But voicing, in addition to Jacob, Paul Walter Hauser is dark. And then the elements of things that make up the dark. Angela Bassett voices Dreams. And then we have Sleep, Unexplained Noises. Nat Faxon is great as Insomnia. Then there's Quiet, Ike Barinholtz is Light. And Mia Akimi Brown is a wonderful character of Hypatia that uh, Orion meets um, during dreams and in the dark. And the adult Orion is voiced by none other than Colin Thanks. Just on every level, this is so wonderful. I can't encourage you enough. Great family film. Great film just for the kids on Netflix this Friday. 
Groundhog Day. So, there's your tip for Jacob in a family film. Now, if you want to see Jacob in a non-family film, see him in cold copy. But that is all the time we have today. Next week, November, uh, February. Why I said November, I don't know. We've got director Sharon Lee is going to join us to talk about Float. And you're going to hear my exclusive interview with Ava Hossman talking about the very fun Willie and me. And when you think of Willie, who do you think of? Willie Nelson. And if you did, you got that right because he's in the film. And it's a fun one. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Thank <laughs> you.